Hey everybody, thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode of CEO Sit-Downs. On today's show, I interview the CEO and founder of Voyage Foods, Adam Maxwell. Adam, at a very early age, discovered his passion for food, and in 2021, he founded Voyage Foods with a mission to make real, wholesome, flavorful food that honors everything that makes the original so very special. This includes their peanut-free spread, their cocoa-free chocolate, and their bean-free coffee, all of which I've tasted, and while I think I'll continue to stick with Jif peanut butter, I certainly see the need that Voyage Foods is trying to fill. In this conversation, Adam really gives me a great education in the world of food and the challenges that the food industry faces in the coming decades. It's really a discussion you won't want to miss. So, without further ado, I invite you to pull up a chair and listen in to my conversation with Adam Maxwell. Hello, Adam, and welcome to the show. Happy to have you. Hi, John. Thanks so much for having me. You bet, my dude. Now, Adam, tell me, I really want to get into your company, of course, here, but I want to know more about you. So if you would, here you are sitting as the CEO. I I want you to kind of take us back to that initial moment, that initial time of life where you found yourself on this trajectory to where you are now. Yeah, it's one of those things where it's very much so where is that point, right? And that point could either be two and a half years ago when we thought about fundraising. It could have been 15, 16 years ago when I got into food. And there were probably a huge amount of points along the way that led to it. But, you know, if we're starting further back, I was obsessed with food from a young age. I feel like, you know, people become CEOs and start companies for, you know, a modality of different interests, right? Some people are, this is white space. Some people are like, this is something I have to do. Some people it's, you know, specific knowledge, calling, whatever. There's no normatively better or worse, but I was obsessed with food at a young age, ended up working in, you know, kind of very high-end fine dining restaurants from 14 throughout high school, throughout college, you know, weekends, school vacations, you know, every Christmas and New Year's, I'd be working a line at some kind of James Beard award-winning type restaurant and really like deepened and deepened that love of food. And, you know, I think food is such a powerful way to bring people together, you know, like all of our most important moments in life, whether it's weddings, anniversaries, you name it, no matter what the culture is, you know, it's all around food and beverage, you know, and bring people together, you know, you're feeding people the, you know, the food you cook becomes the cells in your body, right? You know, there's nothing more kind of visceral than that. And from there, it was really, you know, I, I didn't have this idea of being a famous chef or anything like that. I probably toyed with it a, a tiny bit, but never kind of seriously and ended up, you know, discovering the field of food science. And when I realized that, you can basically do recipe development and then those recipes would be made in factories and then those factories would send food all over the world, right? You know, the the second, that was like, I think the first really big aha moment because, you know, I think in Omaha, Nebraska, where you're from, it's very different, right? There are a lot of ag colleges, et cetera, but on the coast, you don't really learn that there's a career in food science, food development, any of that stuff. Like I didn't know what it was until two years into college when I was like, oh, 
this school is food science and I'm studying some other science that's super lame compared to food science, I'm just going to totally transfer and change over. Yeah. So kind of that was the, the first big bit of like, hey, like I'm going to dedicate my life to, you know, cooking at large scale, so to speak, and, and recipe development at large scale. And then fast forward many years, I was working at a molecular wine and spirits company in San Francisco. They make uh, wine without grapes, whiskey without aging, incredible, incredible researchers, incredible team. They're doing some wildly interesting stuff. It was kind of looking back and looking forward at the same time of, you know, I started my career in pastry. I have a huge amount of kind of large scale food manufacturing chocolate experience. Same thing on the coffee side and looking at what was next in life and, you know, kind of this feeling of the past and feeling of the future kind of coincided of, you know, the, there needs to be food tech done differently and we need to look at more problems than just, you know, the veganization of everything. I think there's some good cases of why we can't eat meat at the rate we're eating at Americans eat globally, right? You know, if, if all 8 billion people or so on this planet were eating American meat centric diet, you know, we just wouldn't have enough food to produce all, all that, that poultry and beef, et cetera. Right. So, you know, I, I do think that make, made a lot of sense, but really looking forward of, you know, what are these commodities that have these like really, really specific accessibility issues, right? Things like coffee and chocolate. Like I think most people don't realize that all the projections are such that by 2050, we'll have one third of the supply of coffee we do now because of climate change and climate change related issues in weather. And we'll have three X the demand, right? And, you know, when you start looking at that, similar things with chocolate, it's like, holy shit, like someone needs to fix this, right? because that piece of like preserving human experience is so important, right? And that was, I think, the real big aha moment of like, let's work on archiving these things in ways that are lower cost today, radically more environmentally friendly today, you know, scalable, clean label and really approachable. And, you know, can we replicate these types of food commodities in such a way that we can, you know, buffer out these changing markets due to climate change? So there's a lot to unpack there, Adam, yeah. and I hope we get a chance to dive into all of it. But my first thought, my first question is, why were you obsessed with food at an early age? Because I, I don't really see that. I don't really envision that as something that most people just kind of obsess over. Maybe when they're an adult and they can cook, but why so young? Yeah, I feel like I've talked to my therapist a lot about this. Both my parents were academic, very hardworking academics in the kind of Cambridge, Massachusetts academic sphere, which is what it is. And we never ate dinner together. And I realized at a really young age that if I cooked for the family, we'd all spend two hours together. And like we like my parents wouldn't be reading academic literature and talking about their different grants and research stuff at the dinner table. And I think that was one of the first big pieces. And like it's, it's kind of a sad way into, you know, it's not like this happy, glorious, so to speak, experience, so to but But I, I really do think that was a big piece of it. And I, and I realized at a really young age, the power of food bringing people together. And then I think the secondary aspect was really, they were both terrible cooks. 
And so we had terrible food in the house and we had a ton of takeout because they worked a ton. And like, I love my parents to death. We have fantastic relationships both now and then. And I totally understand, like I'm obsessed with my work. They're obsessed with their works. Like there's no normative judgment, but we had a few dottings of, you know, we'd go to a fancy restaurant once a year for someone's birthday or something. And I just remember just being like, this is something else. And I, I feel like people have those experiences with all sorts of stuff. And I think that's like, you know, discovery of some light or passion, whether it's, you know, I'm a big wine dork. And I think if you ask a lot of people whose like careers are wine, like what was the first bottle of wine that you drank that like lit up your soul? Like they can all tell you like it was an 82 Morgone or something. Right. And, and I think those kind of splatterings of, of fine dining when I was growing up really, you know, made me just like it elates the palate. It's so multisensorial. You know, it's probably one of the most fleetings of art forms. Right. Like you can record a movie now. You can record music. You can see pictures of the Mona Lisa. But food disappears. Right. It disappears and it becomes part of you. And there's something just like deeply emotional and beautiful about that. Hey, everybody. A while back, I had the CEO of 37 Signals, Jason Freed, on the show. 37 Signals, as you will remember, is the company behind Basecamp, a project management software, namely for remote companies, and Hey, a new approach to email that seeks to transform email into something you want to use, not something you're forced to deal with. Well, in the last week or two, I took the plunge and I got myself a Hey.com email And let me tell you, it's the best. The features that Hey provides not only makes email more functional from an organizational and productivity standpoint, but it's also made email more enjoyable as well. I encourage you to go back to the episode where Jason and I discussed it in greater detail, but I can tell you it's well worth the $100 a year. Don't believe me? Try it free for a week or two. There's no payment required. But be assured that I am a big fan of Hey.com. Now let's get back to the conversation. So take me now, take me now to where you first got the idea for Voyage Foods because Voyage's big thing is that you guys are making these foods like coffee, like chocolate, like the, the, the nut spread without nuts kind of thing, all without cocoa, all without beans, all without peanuts, etc., were you trying to develop these things yourself? And I, I mean, what, what was the genesis of that? Because you didn't just wake up one day and there was a company there with all these different lines of product. How, how did that start off specifically in that moment? Yeah, so I was leading a, a research and development team at Endless West, as I had said, and we were, in some veins, it's similar, right? They're doing whiskey without the barrel aging. They're doing wine without the grapes. And the initial impetus and thought was like, can we apply this same set of technologies that we did to do all these spirits products to things like coffee and chocolate? And then the more you think about it, like, Oh no, you can't do that. And I think that was the real big piece of, I was like, well, we've done just such incredible research here on spirits. You know, what other things that I, that weren't possible could I, you know, apply food science to that the world really needed? I think that was the big key piece of, you know, I didn't really want to be in spirits forever. I, I had kind of deep love of, 
and, and, and knowledge base of coffee and chocolate. And it was really like, that was the next piece of like, is it possible to do this? And that was much more before the kind of foundational business plan or fundraise or any of that started. So, so was it just that deep love and knowledge of coffee and chocolate that drew you to it? Or were there other aspects maybe more technical into the food science portion of it all where you thought these, these can be changed in such a way to have no, no, to not have cocoa, to not have peanuts, et cetera. Was there anything else about those two specific products? Yeah, I, I think like if you look at a through line through all of them and, and, all of our core R&D is kind of based on this one principle, which I, I guess is the aha moment that you're looking for that I had missed on the previous comment or on the previous answer. But it's really like coca, like chocolate doesn't exist in the natural world, right? Like if you have the seed of a cacao pod out of the fruit in West Africa, it tastes like bitter, it tastes a little bit like wood, it tastes kind of like tropical fruit. Same with coffee beans, right? They, they taste like bitter hay, so to speak, right? A green coffee bean. And so all of these flavors, textures, experiences, we know as a chocolate bar, as a you know, cup of coffee that I drank this morning, those are caused by process. So what happens to that coffee bean on the way from it being a coffee cherry to it being a brewed cup of coffee or same thing with chocolate. And the thought was, well, why can't we just take different ingredients and generate those same flavor profiles, generate those same textural and rheological profiles with different inputs? And can those different inputs be more climate resilient? Can they be lower cost? Can they be you know, much lower environmental impact while still being kind of very clean label and approachable and allergen free? And that, that was that first aha moment. Like, well, none of these things exist in the natural world. None of them ever have existed in the natural world. They're all a product of some man-made process. Why can't we take a slightly different man-made process and take something like grape seeds and turn it into something that tastes like a chocolate bar? So with, within those processes, I, I'm curious, what exactly, I guess, if, if you can say, where are you, are you sourcing all of that stuff from the United States or is it more across the globe? Because I just want to know what different components make it you know, more climate friendly, more cost friendly, more environmentally friendly, all of that. Yeah. So I, I think it, it definitely, most of the, most of the ingredients are from the U S okay. but if you're looking, if you're looking at a chocolate bar, like let's take, let's just stick with the example of chocolate, you know, our chocolate bars, you know, our, our bulk chocolate that, that we are making, it's made out of, you know, grape seeds, byproducts from industrial wine manufacturer, wine manufacturing, sunflower meal, byproduct from sunflower oil manufacturing, sugar, fat, natural flavors, right? And so, you know, when you're looking at, you know, these these byproducts and these other byproducts, you're always going to get lower cost, right? Because it's like you're not the fine, you know, financial reason for growing grapes. No one grows grapes to make grape seeds, right? And then on the environmental side, you know, coffee and chocolate are some of the most environmentally taxing products in the world, in, in the world of food. It, and I think it's crazy. It's wild because they're so ubiquitous. And I think it's, you know, e even more confusing because no one knows it. Like if you look at environmental impacts of coffee and chocolate, the LCA's life cycle analyses, it's, 
it's one of those sciences that isn't as it's not like physics where there's right and wrong right there there are people who do crunch different numbers and get different results but as a whole you know environmental impacts on a co2 emissions basis of a kilo of chocolate and a kilo of coffee are worse than milk are worse than poultry are worse than Right. And given that they are some of the besides beef and I think lamb are some of the most climate intensive ingredients in the world, anything you're using is going to be a lot lower. So part of our work is, you know, sourcing things with alternative ingredients with as low environmental footprints as possible so we can get kind of as big carbon reduction as possible, carbon, water, et cetera. So with all because correct me if I'm wrong, Adam, but do you guys have three products that are open to the market right now. So the chocolate is for sale right now, but industrially. So we do not sell that as a CPG product. Our, the peanut, the cacao-free chocolate, yeah, is not available as a CPG product, but is industrially. The peanut butter substitute product, the peanut-free spread, that is available as a CPG product. And the coffee is also available industrially as a kind of liquid concentrate to be added into anything. Yeah. So just just so the listeners understand that correctly, if they were to go into a store right now, they'd only be able to find that peanut-free spread on the shelf? Exactly, under our brand. So with each of those, with each of those products, I, I'm just dying to know how many iterations of taste, of texture, of all these different things did you have to go to till you finally landed on one that was that was pleasing? Well, to pleasing, probably a few hundred. Yeah. To what's released on market, definitely in the four figures and up space. Because the, the first, I think, six months on the chocolate development was, was bef- much before we had formed the company. And it's one of those things of, I felt like Sisyphus, like, you know, pushing a rock up the hill every day and it, it rolling back down. But that's science, right? And that's the fun part of science. But it wasn't even remotely close until version, you know, a few hundred and something. I'm sure I could go back and look. But, but yeah, definitely of the things that are, you know, market ready in the thousands. And there's, you know, whether it's on the process side, on the flavor chemistry side, on the analytics, you know, there's, there's a huge amount of different pieces that go into it. But yeah, definitely was, let's put a few potions together and it worked type thing. Because if it was, someone would have done it already. Right? Sure. So speaking back to the genesis of the company, I know I, I read a press release. I read something that says you guys have accepted some seed money, some other kind of funds and in the million dollars and whatnot. How are you as a CEO allocating those funds? Where are your priorities? Where are you valuing different aspects of both your current current earning potential as well as future projects that you want to get into? Yeah, that's that's a board meeting on Thursday, so it's, uh, I'm sure that question's going to come up come up again this week. But we've raised around, I think, forty three million dollars to date in the last let's call it two years, and you know a huge percentage of that is going into research and development. Science isn't cheap, analytical equipment isn't cheap, scientific talent isn't cheap, and I think at at a really deep level. The value proposition of Voyage Foods is more of the kind of research development and technology, right? You know, that's why we're not going to sell our chocolate as a consumer product because we want to sell the ingredients so any large scale manufacturer can use our chocolate in, in their products, right? 
obviously there's the overhead piece of we have a factory factories are not expensive not inexpensive to build and you know sales marketing etc I, I don't think there's any very like non-traditional way of capital allocation of you know capital intensive and capital intensive type company you know it's very different than tech where you can run really lean teams you don't have any you know huge infrastructure costs or anything like that so we definitely do skew much more on the like equipment side so to speak than 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 most you know either cpg food companies that are using contract manufacturers or tech companies in that way and a big part of our last you know fundraising which happened midway through last year was to for kind of real scale up you know going from the multi-tons a day we can do now to multi-ton metric tons an hour and that facility will be kind of somewhere in the midwest and come online you know, a little less from a year from now. But, you know, those are, you know, obviously huge capital expenditures and undertakings. And those are the scariest purchases to make because you're like, well, if it takes me a year to build a factory, do I pull the trigger now? Do I pull the trigger in six months? Do I pull it in a year? And no matter, there, there's no right or wrong answer. And these sums of money are so large that it's just, you know, it's an undertaking, right? But I think anyone in capital-heavy businesses can probably commiserate with me about that. And I'm sure a bunch have been on this show before. Sure, sure. So one one question that just came to mind, not not directly connected to your response there, but where did the name Voyage Foods come from? Voyage Foods, two things. One, I was always a space dork also, a space and food dork for me, a young kid. And the Voyager spacecraft, you know, launched in the 60s, Voyager 1 and 2, they're these spacecrafts that we just sent out into the far reaches of the universe, right? Like they're, the both Voyager 1 and 2 are the furthest things that have ever left Earth. They're past the Oort cloud. And, you know, they, they took their tours of the solar system. But the, the whole purpose was to kind of be this vessel to show that, the earth existed and that humanity existed. You know, there's this gold plate like Carl Sagan and a bunch of other astrophysics design of, you know, to try to help people triangulate where earth was. They had the double helix. They had some videos and stuff also on it. It did more digitally. And those, I think those like bets on the infinite are beautiful. And, and I think there's something really special about, we're going to do something that doesn't even matter in our generation, but it's the right thing to do. And then the other piece, and that was the Voyager spacecraft. And the other piece is, you know, the great Voyagers, whether it was the Magellans, the Shackletons, the Columbuses of the world. And I think there's something beautiful about setting sail and not knowing where you're going and doing it for the sake of it. And I think like, that tenacity that that those people and their crews underwent is just you know wildly respectable and in a, in a world like we don't really have great explorers anymore right in the same vein right like we've climbed the highest peaks we've gone to the bottom of the ocean we've explored most functionally all of the world and, and i think that just like the jumping off the cliff and and doing the crazy thing yeah there, there's something beautiful about that and you know 
the Voyagers and the Voyager spacecraft, right? So Adam, I have to I have to push back just a little because I I love what you're saying. I love the fact of the the explorer mentality, you know. But I, I'm I gotta think that your investors might be a little unsettled by that language, you know, going to reaches, you know, far beyond what matters for our generation. I mean, has that ever been an issue you've encountered? Yes and no. Sure. I, I, I think some of the like yeah, I, I think that's a, that's a fantastic point. Yes and no. I, I think part of, we have a fantastic investor base, and, and I do think part of it was, you know, we're not set, we were never selling, we're a molecular coffee, chocolate, and nut-free spreads company, right? We are building a technology platform that is going to radically change how food is grown, processed, and consumed for the next century. And like, that's a big bet I think a lot of people can get by. And yeah, I do think you invest differently when you're looking at, you know, if we were just to build a cacao-free chocolate company and we're looking at, at, we wanted to get acquired in five years, we'd build a company very differently. And so I think you need investors who really are on that same journey with like, let's be too big for Nestle to buy us, right? Uh, let's be too big to buy. Let's, let's really like, try to make our stamp in changing the world of food and not just, you know, changing some piece of it, so to speak. And so I think, you know, we found investors who have those similar, very long-term infinite game type mentalities. But I think if we had a different set of investor base, it would be, Adam, why are you always allocating getting so much cash to research, right? You know, because it's like, hey, the product's done. Like, let's just, let's, let's slow down research. Let's ramp it down. Let's sell some of that equipment off and let's, you know, invest more heavily in, in, on the commercial side. So, you know, that, that, that's a really good point to bring up. So if I'm understanding you here correctly, Adam, your, your mind, your mental bandwidth, so to say, is very much focused, is very much spent on things outside of just your chocolate product, your peanut butter product, your coffee product. You're looking to attack, to take on various other in such a way that they would fit within the Voyage, the Voyage family. Absolutely, yeah. And feel free to not say over over the call here, but are there any in particular that you're you're looking at? Any ripe for the plucking? Yes, there are. None I am at liberty to dis- disclose right now. But yeah, there's there's a lot of things that aren't kind of public that our R and D team is kind of deep in the trenches working on that I think will be a lot more exciting. Not that what we're doing is not already phenomenally exciting. But will be a lot more exciting than what's what has come up until now. Sure, sure. So give me give me an idea here, Adam. When did Voyage officially start? When did Voyage Foods officially start? What it was like two years and four days ago or something. Our, our two year anniversary or two years and ten days ago. Our two year anniversary was on this. It was yeah on the second. So about two years. That's not long at all. And you guys have already got, would you say $43 million in capital? You've already got two industrial, you know, B2B products essentially, and then one to consumer product. Do you have any idea, any thoughts as to why that trajectory has been such a, such a rocket ship, such a takeoff? Self-flagellation. No, I think, I think a lot of it has been I like to think of Voyage Foods as being a deeply pragmatic company. And so, you know, us thinking from day one of, you know, 
let's make sure on the research side that we're building stuff that, you know, all those unit operations we're doing in the lab, we can easily source industrially, right? When we were setting up our first factory, it was working with equipment vendors all over the world saying, we know you have 18 month lead times on shipping us equipment. What do you have that's used sitting in a pilot plant in maybe some part of the world that we can take off your hands? And I think a lot of it's been this kind of just deep pragmatism to our approach of let's make sure we're doing things that we can scale. Let's make sure we're doing things where processes exist industrially. And then I think a lot of it's just, you know, the team wants it and the team's excited. And I think we're doing a lot of big things. And I think that purpose that you get to bring every day to work when it's really there can kind of evangelize you to do things you, you wouldn't think possible. It's like the analogy of, you know, the, the mothers who can, you know, lift up cars because they're ones over a baby or something like that. But I, I do think that like, you know, purpose in business can, can help you both get perspective and, and evangelize, you know, yourself to do more than you thought possible. So speaking of your team, how many folks do you have there at Voyage Foods? We're like 34 right now. That's pretty good. Yeah. yeah. Because, and, and the, the only reason that I, the only reason I ask about that is because I'm always curious as to how CEOs lead. Because, correct me if I'm wrong here, Adam, but your background's namely in food science. Did you ever take any business course or anything like that? No. So, no. and forgive me for maybe this being too prying of a question, but have you ever felt somewhat unqualified or inadequate to lead a company i mean what's what's been the 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 experience for you as a ceo yeah i think i think anyone anyone going from any role to like kind of founder ceo like if you don't have days where you wake up and say like i can't do this like either delusional or like aren't dreaming big enough you know I, i i i probably have those you know feelings more more often than I'd like to admit. I feel like I got caught on that question. I know it was a two-part question, so. Well, no, that's okay because, I mean, my next my next curiosity into your into your personality, if you will, is who do you who do you go to? Who do you, who's your reference point for how to be a CEO? I guess because I mean, you said both your parents are academics. Because a lot of a lot of guests on the show, they've had a parent in business or something like that. Who who's your role model in that sense? I don't know if I necessarily have a role model in the sense of in, in that way. Like I've always thought Thomas Edison and and the Edison Labs and what they built from a technology side that was always kind of a north star for me. You know, they were like, we're going to do one invention a week, something huge every month. Then he built the kind of modern R and D architecture of departments. And that was always known to start Bell Labs also. I think, you know, people don't do like 20 year out research like Bell Labs was doing, right, at, at this moment in time. And I think that's a really sad thing for the progress of technology. And I, yeah, I, I don't have anyone, so, so to speak, in my life that's like my North Star. My, my old CEO at Endless West, Alec Lee, we're still incredibly close. I, I feel like I should thank him more and more for being, you know, such, such an amazing trusted advisor. I think we have a great investor investor base and they're fantastic advisors. I think in a lot of ways, my exec team, right? Like my VP of 
finance knows infinitely more about finance than I ever will, right? My VP of marketing knows, or Voyage's VP of marketing knows infinitely more about marketing than I, I ever will. And so I think a lot of it is, you know, pulling those right people in so you can have those seats at the table. And like, it's not me, right? Like I, I talk about this at our all hands meetings. Like, you know, it's not like I can help push this company forward on my own. The exec team can't push the company forward on this own. It's on all of us every day to make those micro decisions to build the best company we can build, right? And I think, you know, it's, it's great having external advisors, but I think so much of it is internal of like the different knowledge bases, experiences and perspectives of everyone on the team. Hey, everybody. I just wanted to take a quick minute here to remind you that if you know any CEOs who would make great guests on my show, send me an email at john at ceositdowns.com. I am always on the hunt for great guests, so if you know anyone, please send them my way. I'd love to have them on. Again, you can reach me at john at ceositdowns.com. Now let's get back to the conversation. So where do you find yourself spending the most energy and time? Is it in R&D? Is it marketing? Is it, you know, looking at the balance sheet? Where Where's your time spend most allocated to? In some ways, I think that's seasonal. Okay. Like the four months before we closed our Series A, a lot of my time was on the investors, investor relations side. Now, kind of, I think my time is not equally split, but I think the big buckets are, you know, scale up manufacturing, sales, business development, you know, exec team management, working with my executive team, long-term strategic planning. I think those are probably the real big buckets, but I think it very much so depends by the day, depends by the week, but, but yeah. Does does that answer your question? Oh, for sure. My, so a while back in October, maybe, I can't remember, I had a, a CEO on my show, founded his company, and they they went through a similar fundraising process, similar to a Series A, and it was a huge headache for him. I mean, he talked about the great distress that he had in getting over that finish line. Was that similar for you, or was that fairly seamless? How was that experience? It was seamless in some ways, but it was exhausting. I think like there's nothing not exhausting about, you know, we, we closed $36 million for our Series A and it was, I don't know, 18 months after we funded, started the company or something. And anytime you're dealing with that many zeros and that many different investors and yeah, I think it was, it was cognitively draining and, and exhausting, but I was actually really surprised at how smooth it went and not how easy it was, but how straightforward the in investment process was. And I, I think, you know, if that's, if there's a le- lesson anyone gleams from this is it's a lot, it's a lot less mystical raising venture capital, so to speak, than a lot of people would make it out to be. And I think a lot more people would start companies if they weren't so scared of that. I remember talking to my parents and they're like, like, you don't know any VCs. How are you going to, you know, you don't know any venture people. You don't understand this world. And I don't think that necessarily matters. I definitely think it would help, but, and it definitely did from the series C to the series A. But I, I think the, it's like anything of like, you learn the rules, so to speak, and you play the game and, you keep playing the game. But yeah, it definitely wasn't, yeah, an easy, fast, or kind of beautiful thing. It was just like, I'm just going to drag this weight, so to speak, across the finish line. 
And see, that's what I think a lot of people who have never sat in that particular seat don't realize because it's it's a very, very regulatory, very intense process on all on all sides, on all parties. But they see the the press release that says Voyage got 36 million, 43 million, whatever the number is. And they're thinking, gosh, yeah. that was just like a snap of a finger. Oh, yeah, definitely not. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the deals of any nature, whether they be funding deals, acquisition, merger, those are just so intensive and laborious. So that that's that's why I was curious there. But where Adam or what what do you find yourself leaning into to learn more just about the world in general, world news, free news, things pertaining to your your field specifically? Are you a podcast guy, books? I mean, where do you fall in all that? Love books. I feel like I love books on, you know, mostly history of technology, technological innovation, humanity, and that and that type of stuff, which is like both super irrelevant, but also wildly relevant to what we're doing. I think it's, you know, to be in this position, staying current on some of that like actual research, whether it's patents coming out of some of the most technically rigorous companies in the world, you know where your food science, food chemistry publications are always useful. So much of the development, I think this is stuff people probably don't realize enough, but so much of food development and let across industries is like your the manufacturers of the equipment, right? Their their innovations can power like the iPod first, for example, right? They couldn't do the iPod, they couldn't do the iPod, and then I forget what Asian company, but they released a smaller hard hard disk. And Johnny Ives went to Steve Jobs and was like, oh, we can finally do it now. And so, you know, looking at whether it's on the manufacturing upstream, I try not to read the news. I think after Trump got elected, I started reading a lot less news, and then after the pandemic started that went much lower so i try not to read too much news i try to read most of the economist every every week because i think like it's a good almost non-biased review of what's happening in the world every week but yeah i yeah i don't think there's anything highly specific or special about you know my kind of information gathering so to speak sure sure so I have to ask, have you ever read Steve Jobs' biography by Walter Isaacson? I love Walter Isaacson. I haven't read that one. Okay. I, 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 his, the one on Leonardo da Vinci was awesome. Love his books. I, I don't know why I never got around to that one. I know it's on my, I love this idea of the anti-library of, you know, the value of a library of unread books is higher than the library of the value of the library of red books and it's on my to read pile but i haven't i haven't prioritized that one so and the only reason i ask here adam is because in our short time of me getting to know you here we're sitting at the 40 minute mark roughly i mean you're very much focused on innovation and how that kind of feeds into the paradigm of history and that book at least one of the takeaways i had was Steve Jobs kind of embodied this intersection of technology and art, making tech beautiful, making it wonderful in that sense. I mean, I'm recording on a Mac today. So do you do you see yourself in a similar way that you're you're seeing the intersection of food along with, you know, removing the allergen, removing the cost of the environment, et cetera? Do you see yourself kind of in that intersection? I guess 
guess so. Yeah. I think if not prompted, I don't know how I'd describe myself, but yeah, definitely at the intersection of like food science and the application of that to improve the food system for a better planet and a better world. Right. I think that's something that's just like so fundamentally needed and there are going to be so many problems and, you know, global food production in the next X amount of years. That's like, I think they're all the way from seed and seed health and soil health, all the way to, you know, microbial digestion and, and feces, right? The whole span of food, right? I think there need to be people at each step in the process and it's going to take, you know, a ton of companies and a ton of people on different parts of that chain to, to, to solve it and make that dent. But I, I think it's, you know, meaningful, meaningful to, you know, be leading an amazing team of people to be making our stamp on it also. So as the CEO, how many hours a day do you find yourself working? That's a fantastic question. Last week I was in Europe and it was work from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. there. And then the great thing about Central European time is 5 p.m. Central European time, it happens to be 9 a.m. West Coast time. So then those calls start. And then, you know, I think we did a few 16-hour days last week. But I, I, I think there's like... You can only do that in sprints, but I think probably, I don't know, 10, 10, 11, 12 hours, but sometimes less, sometimes more. I think it's also very seasonal. Definitely don't want to burn out. I I like thinking of this as like my goal for me, at least, is to be sitting in the same seat in 30 years. We're just working on bigger stuff. The company is bigger and we're different, but it's the same, right? And in that vein, it's very much so much much sort of a marathon than, than a sprint and prioritizing the body is something I'm not necessarily fantastic at, but but I, I know I need to because it really is like a long-term investment. Yeah, and the reason I ask is because, I mean, there have been so many CEOs on this show who, who have to work very, very long hours. And they, and they also shared those same struggles, you know, whether it be exercising, eating right, all those different things that just contribute to overall wellness. So, so with that, with that kind of framework in mind, when, when it comes to, I mean, you, you talk about sitting in the seat for the next 30 years and the challenges that come with it, sitting in your seat today, when you look out on the horizon for Voyage Foods, what problems, what challenges are specific that that you don't exactly have an answer to quite yet, but you plan on addressing with time? Well, I think true like product market fit, you know, is, is definitely one of them, right? You know, what is the specific story we're telling on the business to business ingredient side? Like we have that sussed out, but I think that's a big piece also of, you know, how can we better tell the story to, how can we be a better ingredient provider or solution provider to our customers and to our potential customers, right? I think that's a big one. I think unsolved is, you know, where you index capital, right? Like I just, in my blood, I always want to sink more money onto the research side because I think they'll have the, you know, 
highest leverage upside down the road. But given that, you know, we're a series A company and like our big metrics this year are revenue metrics, right? Are about hitting XYZ revenue goals between these different channels and products. And so I think, you know, a lot of those, do we index more on the international market or the US market, right? Like that's that's a big question, right? There's, there's no obvious answer to that. Do we index more on, you know, scale up of, when, as we're building this next factory, do we want to build lines that are, it, are is chocolate going to be 10 times the size of spreads, right? You know, how do you model out sales when it takes so long to build, you know, a food factory, so to speak, an index on, on those types of things? So does that answer your question? Yeah, no, it certainly does. And it kind of gives me a greater view into not only where you guys sit today, but what what roadblocks, hurdles, etc. you'll face tomorrow. So do you guys have a big international presence? I, I don't rightfully know. No, no, no. We, we, we do not today. today. Okay. Is there goals for that down the road? Or is it kind of win on your home turf first mentality? Yeah, we're like in the kind of business development process with some like large international companies, but, but nothing that we're shipping internationally. Gotcha. So to, to back to the peanut free spread, is that something, I mean, where, where could a consumer find that within the country geographically? Cause I know you guys are in California. Is it something totally on the West coast yet or? No. So it's available on Amazon throughout the whole country. It's available in Sprouts grocery stores, which there's, I think, almost 300 Sprouts that we're in or or 400 Sprouts that we're in. I think those are mostly towards the West Coast, but there are a few, I think, in Florida and other places also. We're in some regional grocery stores in the Northeast also, and that kind of retail product is is, is spreading in, in, in retail in the U.S. now. So did you have a really hard time in getting that into these larger grocery stores? I would like to say yes. And it was some like valiant effort on our team. I, I really wasn't that involved in okay. it. We have, we have a great sales team and retail sales team. But getting into Sprouts, our first like big national retailer, I think was a lot easier than I expected. I think it's one of those things like fundraising, right? People think like, oh, how am I going to get this product into this big national grocery chain? That seems so mystical and difficult. And then... It's just, you know, they have their category review schedules, you submit, they like it, you ship them product. It was was a lot simpler, so to speak, than I I, I thought it would be from the outset. Okay. And once again, I ask because I've had prior hosts on this show who have had to take their companies, not public, but they've accepted outside money because it was very hard for them to get their product in such larger chains without having that connection. That's that's super interesting. So good for you guys. Well, I think I think we're in some band saying the same thing mm-hmm. because our sales team had sold into these retailers. Oh, gotcha. And, and okay. Like, like I, I I don't, but that's why, you know, we have people in sales who are pros at their jobs. And so they they knew that process and kind of those teams sure how to cross those bridges so to say yeah yeah, um that that's super interesting i i wasn't aware of that when it came to the broader food space i mean i just go to walmart and get my groceries i don't spend much time thinking about how they got there 
<laughs> yeah. Pardon. So, so Adam, once again, I, I love to pick your mind on these kind of things. When you look out into the horizon, you know, that lays before you specifically, are there any particular technologies or practices or processes that stand to substantially change food as we know it today? Yeah, I think there are a lot. I mean, share a couple. I, I'd love to learn more about this. Yeah, I know yeah, nothing. Yeah, so so I think there's, it's interesting. I think there are a few different pieces of this because if there's some major breakthroughs in clean energy, there's a huge amount that will be helped in the food space, right? You know, freeze drying will immediately be cost effective. Spray drying will immediately be cost effective. These wildly energy intensive processes they're quite expensive because of their energy loads. And that'd be, make it a lot easier to move high nutrition value food all over the world, no moisture, saving on shipping costs, freight costs, all these other things. So I think a bunch on the energy side, right? Also, if nuclear fusion existed tomorrow and energy prices dropped a hundredfold, you know, desalination would exist, right? And if desalination existed, you know, countries like Saudi Arabia could start growing a lot more of their own food, right? And so, and countries, you know, with more with more desert and not access to rainfall, could start growing their own food. And I think those very fundamental, way upstream, not even in the food space, so to speak, but you know, cheap energy and desalination would would foundationally change how food could be grown. I think on the plant science, plant genetic side, you know, there's a huge amount there. That's not my space, but there's, you know, I think GMOs are objectively doing good things for the world and will continue to and are part of the solution. I am very interested to see, you know, how this cell culture piece plays out. I think there's some foundational issues around it, but there are a lot of things, there are a lot of technologies that have had foundational issues that, you know, brilliant scientists have leaped over with grace. Yeah, I, I think those are like, there's some specific ones in like, certain novel roasting technologies and stuff, but those are much less exciting from like food system standpoint. Like also precision drones for pesticide application and stuff like that. I, I think there's a huge amount at the farm level, at the seed level, and at the kind of energy processor level that's gonna be really wild. Give me an education. What does desalination mean? Oh, desalination is uh, taking seawater and turning it into fresh water. Gotcha. So being able to do that yeah. in your mind, you think will really catapult food as we know it to something, something way beyond what it is. Oh, absolutely. And, and you know, if you look at Israel, right, Israel, tiny country, most of that land is non-growable. So, right, you know, and that's, yeah, well, that's my question because I, I mean, here I am in Nebraska and we have wonderful soil for growing such things. But, you know, even if countries that are surround that have that salt water, salt water volume that we don't, and even if desalination becomes so, so effective, what if their soils aren't great? I mean, what's, what's your thought there? Well, so what Israel and other places have done and are continuing to do, you know, part of it is how do you work on building topsoil? Right, which is a piece into its own. But, you know, what Israel's done, a lot of, you know, not vertical farms, but indoor farms, right? Hydroponic, aeroponic, et cetera. And they're 
I think Israel in a lot of ways pioneered this, but other countries are starting to using diesel water for, you know, these more kind of novel types of growing, whether it's whether it's hydroponic, aquaponic or other. And and so I, I think like it'll open up food because it's, it's amazing, like some countries import 90% of their food, right? You know, we saw in the last few years how delicate supply chains are. And if you think about your country that imports 90% of its food, you're a lot more scared about supply chain disruptions than America, which is one of the net net largest exporters of food in the globe, right? And so I think, you know, more and more countries are going to be thinking about how do we make food domestically, given how tenuous some of these kind of global shipping and logistics problems have been. Interesting. So once again, just to make sure I'm understanding you correctly, places like Israel, Saudi Arabia that maybe don't have the best in way of topsoil, they're taking other routes, whether it be, because when you say hydroponic, what, what does that mean greenhouses? What does that mean exactly? Yeah, hydro- hydroponic could, could be indoor farming. Okay. You're basically okay. just growing growing plants with roots in water. So okay. you don't need you don't need to build topsoil or any of those things. And so, yeah, the does, does that make sense? Oh, totally. No, once again, you're giving me an education. I really appreciate it, yeah. which which leads perfectly into my next question. I mean, Adam, you've been involved in the food space for, you know, however many years now. What is one of the most misunderstood aspects of food as, as a concept, as a, as a thing we need, as a necessity? What exactly is the most misunderstood aspect of it in your mind? I think that processed food is inherently bad. Tell me more, because I would I would be prone to agree with that right away. But yeah, and I, and like it's funny. Both my parents are academics, and they're both like, "Well, that's processed. I don't want that." I'm like, "You guys know too much about what's actually happening." So yeah, objectively, some processed food isn't great for you. So really um, quick, really quick, define process in the way you're using it now. What does processed food mean exactly? So processed food is, you know, a food that doesn't exist in the natural okay. world. So bread is a processed food, right? Bread is one of the earliest foods that humans made, right? Earliest processed food, so to speak. And Cheeto is also processed food, right? <laughs> yeah. That is a processed food. And I think there's this idea in America that ingredients you don't understand are bad for you and that food processing is bad for you. And I, and I think like both of those things are just like, foundationally untrue inherently there are ingredients that you don't understand that are bad for you and there are processed foods that are bad for you but that doesn't mean the like reverse case is true that all processed foods are bad or all ingredients you don't understand that have chemical names are bad and i think that's something that that colloquially you know in the zeitgeist needs to shift because i think you know processed food in a lot of ways and has made it possible for civilization to exist, right? In a lot of foundational ways, right? Biscotti in the Roman Empire, right, was a processed food so the Roman legionnaires could go to battle and have shelf-stable food that wouldn't mold, right? You know, the invention of canning was also like a wartime thing in the Napoleonic Wars era, but made it possible for you know people to live more densely in cities and food preservation as a whole has made it more possible for people to live more densely in cities and not like in agricultural areas and so i think you know food pro- the processing of food and so much has made us who we are that like i don't think we should be scared of it 
Interesting. Good to know. Once again, you're giving me a great education. Really quick, Adam, I know we're coming up on time. I want you to give the audience your best book recommendation, one book that they should read. Ooh, The Physiology of Taste, Meditations on Transcendental Gastronomy by Brilliant Severian. That's a long title, my dude. <laughs> it's a long title. But It's a long title, great book. Okay, awesome. Well, I'll put that in the show notes, and they'll certainly <laughs> have an opportunity to check it out. But real quick, Adam here, give the folks a handoff. Where can they learn more about you, about Voyage Foods, and everything else within your sphere? I guess our website, voyagefoods.com, on LinkedIn, Voyage Foods. We do have Instagram and Facebook, but I think there's a lot less really about us on there. But those are probably the first two places to go to. And if you Google is always your best friend, if you Google Voyage Foods, so that's probably the most comprehensive way out of all of them. Awesome. Well, Adam, thank you so much for giving me some of your time. I know you're a really busy guy, but thank you for giving me some of your time. Thank you for teaching me a thing or two about food. I certainly appreciate it. Awesome. Thank you so much, Sean. Really pleasure, pleasure for you having me on the show. You bet. Take care. Awesome. Whether you allowed us to keep you company on your ride home from the office, during your workout, or as you were getting ready for the day, I appreciate you taking the time to listen to this conversation. Be sure to subscribe and follow CEO Sit Downs on whatever podcast platform you use, and I'd really appreciate it if you could leave a review, as it often helps others find the podcast in the future. And if today's episode called to mind a friend or family member who you think would enjoy today's conversation, go ahead and share this episode with them. I would certainly appreciate it, and hopefully they will too. Thanks again for listening, and may you have a pleasant day wherever you may be.